morning, everybody. We're going to be starting right there in the passage that, uh, that Daniel read for us in First Chronicles chapter 16. Uh, actually, we're going to be back, backing up from there, but if you want to start there. And uh, I want to key in on the phrase there in verse uh, 11 of the reading in First Chronicles chapter 16. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Seeking is such an important theme throughout the scriptures of what God expects of human beings, what he expects of us. We are seekers by nature, you know. Uh, think about just about all the great uh, stories are about people exploring things, maybe exploring something internally about themselves or exploring something in the world or in the universe as we go to the stars. Um, we're just seekers. We look for stuff. Matter of fact, this weekend is probably one of the best examples of people being seekers. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody Friday was out seeking stuff in the stores, how they could find the best deal. Or Monday, they're going to be online seeking things, trying to find something, you know. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, a lot of times, seeking ends in a lot of despair, a lot of frustration, a lot of emptiness. Do you ever find that to be so? Actually, probably a good many of us understand how that is. We sought out happiness in, I don't know, drink and drug and whatever else, relationships, and it didn't really come through. We sought out uh, enlightenment or fulfillment through educational pursuits or books we read, and it never quite does it. It does a little bit, but it doesn't really quite do it. Sometimes you seek out things that, uh, like a link to a, a worship stream on YouTube, and that doesn't show up either, and you end up kind of frustrated with that. That's just life in the world. You seek things, and stuff gets messed up, and you don't really find it. Uh, seeking God's not that way. Uh, the book of Chronicles, which is what we've been uh, reading, and I guess we're, what, we got one more day, I think? The 30th is the last day of the month. So this month we've been reading through the book of Chronicles. And uh, I, I think it is fair to say that the theme of the book of Chronicles is seeking after God. David says it here. Uh, it's all throughout the book, actually. Whenever King Saul, whose story is expansive, it's almost a whole book in 1 Samuel, it gets one chapter in Chronicles, one chapter. And this is basically the only commentary about Saul, the king before David. He did evil. Why? He did not seek the Lord. That's it. Like That's the tweet. That's his life. He did evil because he did not seek the Lord. Uh, David was commended because he did seek the Lord. Um... He t talks a lot about seeking after the Lord. Uh, later on, Israel was divided. And the king that basically caused that division was a king named Rehoboam. Well, what was going on with Rehoboam? Well, Rehoboam also, like Saul, did evil because he did not seek the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, when the temple was built, the temple, a place where people came to seek God, to find Him, to know Him, God promised at the building of the temple, He said, If my people pray and humble themselves and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And, I will, and he goes on with a bunch of blessings. But that was the condition. God said, you guys don't have to be perfect. Actually, y'all could have messed up big time. But if you seek my face, we're going to be fine. The kings of Israel, or primarily really the kings of Judah, I should say, throughout the story of Chronicles, they were measured by whether or not they sought the Lord. You get the point. God wants us to seek after him. And all those things we talked about earlier that so many of us have done, whether it's in shopping or in educational pursuits or in momentary pleasures, we know what that's like to seek after something, to search after it, to pursue it. That's what we're supposed to do with God. But how do we go about that? That's the question I want us to explore for a few minutes uh, this morning. I want us to look at a particular story in the life of David. David, who here 
commands us, we might say, in this song that he led the people of Israel in, in 1 Chronicles 16. He commands us, seek the face of the Lord. Seek his strength all the time. This comes after David learned what it really meant to seek the Lord. And I'm going to add this, to seek the Lord his way. Go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. This is where our story begins. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles 13 and verse 1. David has become king. He's a young-ish man. He's not really young that much, but he's a young-ish man. He's a new king. He's been establishing his kingdom, winning wars, battles, doing all this stuff. And uh, now it's time to come for him to really get things set up with him and the Lord. He's taken over the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. Things are starting to go well for him. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, uh, it begins and says, 1 Chronicles 13 verse 1, it says, Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the captains uh, of the hundreds, even with every leader. By the way, we think, like, why are you just talking to the military guys? Well, look, in this era, talking to the military guys was, it was like talking to his, you know, his cabinet his secretaries of everything. Those were his guys, the people who were leading the military. He consults with them. He consults with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us and let us bring back the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Let me just pause real quick. Ark of the Covenant, uh, God commanded it to be built whenever the covenant was established hundreds of years before at Mount Sinai. It was an elaborate, it wasn't just, I mean, I think some of you think, ah, Ark of the Covenant, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, fancy religious furniture, or whatever. No, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's very presence among his people. It was set up like a throne that God would sit on top of. It was placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle where only one man could go one time a year, and he didn't go in just to hang out with the Lord. He went in to offer sacrifice and atonement for the people to appease God, and then he had to get out of there. He couldn't just stay in there. Before he went in, he had to wash completely, put on very specific robes that God instructed. It was a sacred thing because that's where God lives, is with the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so whenever David says, let's get the ark, he's not like, you know what, we need to get some ancient relics from our people back together to you know, get the National Art Museum going. That's not what we're talking about here. What he was saying is we need to get God close to us in the very center of our kingdom. It's great. The story goes on. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in all the eyes of the people. People are excited about this. So David assembled all Israel together from the Shihor of Egypt even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is, Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who is a throne, enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart. They got fancy stuff, you know. They, I don't know if they paid for it, if they built it, what happened, but they got a brand new cart uh, that was pulled by oxen, uh, from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. Everybody was just having a big time. Uh, just pause on the story right here. Some of you know the story is, but try to pretend you don't if you do. And if you don't know the story, good. Don't read any further. Just stay right here. This is great. Uh, I did actually just write down all the things that are noteworthy about how they approach bringing the ark. Notice all the things that David goes through to do this. Uh, first of all, verse 1 says he consulted with experts. 
on what to do. He went to all his military guys. Of course, they're going to need to protect the ark and make sure the way is safe. And they're the ones who are familiar with what's going on with the people and you know just in the nation in general. He consulted with experts. What do you guys think we should do? He gets all the leaders together. And I'll tell you, this is an amazing thing. There was a, 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 co- a coalition, a coalescence among the leadership where everybody said, yeah, good idea. There's no, there's no general that says, I don't know. It seems like a lot of work. Or I don't think it's a good idea. We should put in this. No, there's, there's real coalescence among the leadership to move this forward. Um, and, and the decision was handled in a great way. David could have just said, I am the king and I have declared that we're going to do this and this is the way it is. He doesn't do that. He could have also said, I am the, the elites. We've gotten together and talked this. No, he actually goes, look at the text. Look at how often the word all is used in this. Do you notice how democratic this whole process is? Um, in verse 2, David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, blah, blah, blah. Um, those who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and those who are with them, blah, blah. Uh, you go down to verse, uh, where are we looking at here? In verse 4, then all the assembly said, you get it, right? This was an incredibly democratic, um, just inclusive decision-making model. Everybody was involved. Everybody was on board. And that's the amazing thing is there was total unity. All the people are working together. He says it's people from all of our land and all of our kinsmen. Maybe the idea is even people who moved out of Judah. It was a troubled time leading up to David's kingdom. So maybe people who were from other places, we're going to get all the priests and Levites together. We're going to get everybody. There was total unity. All of them come together to the place where we're going to take the ark and they're going to have a big parade bringing God back into the heart of his kingdom with his people. There's absolute total unity in what they're doing here. And it just felt right. Do you notice that in the text? In verse 4, it says, All the decisions seemed right in the eyes of the people. You ever been in an experience like that? It's like you're doing something, you're like, I know this is the right thing. I know it is, because you can just feel it. It just seems like we're doing the right stuff here. This is great. It's a good feeling to have. Um, but I'll tell you, they, besides all these great things as far as the social dynamic and maybe some of the, even the internal dynamic that people had about the sense of this thing, man, people put out work. Think about how long it is to plan a parade of any kind of significance. Think about how long it is to plan some sort of big like religious event or, or cultural festival. That's what we're talking about here, except it was of the grandest significance. I mean, this wasn't a thing where, and plus, by the way, even to communicate to everybody was a huge investment. You couldn't just post it somewhere or send out an email blast. They had to go send messengers to collect all these people. Those people had to leave their farms and their, their, uh, you know, their, their crops, their jobs, whatever it was they were doing, to leave and come to this place that would have been some distance for a lot of them. And then whenever they got there, notice the text. I mean, we, we highlighted this. It said it was a new cart. Somebody had to build that thing. Somebody had to put up the money for it. Somebody had to bring the animals for it. All this stuff. They made extreme investment. There was, there was real sacrifice made to seek after God. And then, of course, uh, it's just so clear all throughout the text. The motivation was for God. Don't you see that? I mean, the fact that they even thought about the ark at all shows that they were thinking about God. He actually says, remember we said about King Saul, he did not seek the Lord. But David says, we're going to seek it. We didn't do this in the days of Saul. We're going to do it now. We're going to do this thing. This is the right thing to do. And all throughout, they're just thinking about God. They're talking about God. It's all for the Lord. They're excited in verses, uh, let's see, what you got it, you got it in verse uh, 2, verse 3, verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. All these references to God. And I'll tell you, probably the, the real capper to this whole thing is that the description in verse 8 David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might. 
even with songs and lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. I mean, it was just whatever they could do to celebrate God, that's what they were going to do. I mean, the, the text, I think it's in Samuel, talks about how David was dancing with all of his might. He was so excited he couldn't hold it in. They're just celebrating this big way. There was clear, uh, deeply felt, and clearly manifested passion for God and for what they're doing. This moment would have been one of the most incredible moments to be a part of among God's people that you could ever imagine. Keep going in the story. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah, who was one of the ones who was helping transport the ark, put out his hand to hold the ark, to touch it, because the oxen that was carrying the cart, that was carrying the ark, Stumbled. So the picture is the oxen are carrying, I don't know if there was a rock, I don't know if it's just whatever, I don't know how oxen legs work, but whatever it was, he stumbles, and Uzzah, who apparently was either walking by the ark or in some way was in close proximity, he sees the ark start to tip a little bit. And of course, man, this is, again, this isn't just a fancy piece of religious furniture. This isn't just a, a, a piece of, of fine art, a part of our national heritage. This is the presence of God. And we can't let anything happen to it. It starts to tip and fall. And of course, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't assume that it was with any bad motivation. Maybe it was. Maybe he'd been looking to touch this thing uh, the whole ride. But the impression of the text is, is that he just wanted to stop something bad from happening. He had godly motivation here in what he does. He reaches out and touches the ark. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. So he struck him down because Uzzah put his hand out to the ark. And Uzzah died there before the Lord. All right, quick little aside here. You can read about this. I'm not going to turn to it right now, but if you'd like to read it to learn more about this, you can, you can turn in Scripture and, uh, and read about it. In, uh, in the book of Exodus, particularly Exodus chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7, there's detail given that no one was allowed to touch the holy things, the things where God lived. No human being was allowed to touch it with their hands. Whenever the ark was first built, it was designed with rings in the base of it, right? So it's basically this box, and there was a covering with an elaborate um, you know, structure with these cherubim that had their wings out in the, uh, pointed out toward each other. And there was all these engravings. It was covered in gold. But in the base of it, there were four rings, one in each corner. And the rings were placed where they would sit down, and the ark would sit on top of the rings. And then they would have put poles through those rings, and that was the only way they were to ever transport. That way, they never touched it. Because, of course, to come near to God is a dangerous business. You don't just approach God whatever way you want to. And to touch the ark would be like touching the very presence and essence of God. And anyone who touched it, God said, if anyone touches this, they will die. That was codified in law. It was clearly stated. Nobody had to have any questions about it. That was the rule. And Uzzah violated that rule by touching the ark. And so he died right there on the spot. Now, by the way, five seconds ago, you remember how you were feeling? Man, we're just united here. We're excited. Look at David. I mean, he's dancing. He doesn't even care. That's our king. That's how much God matters. Our king is not dignified at all, and we don't even care. I mean, this is amazing. We all got together and worked on this thing. Look at how much effort has been put into this. There's so much passion and joy here. Uzzah was struck dead before the Lord. The text goes on to say how David responded to this. In verse 11, it says, Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. I want to just make an aside. It doesn't say who David was angry at. 
we may assume he's angry at God, but I don't know that's necessary. Maybe he's angry at himself. Maybe he's angry at us. Maybe he's just angry. You ever get that way when something bad happens? You're not really mad at anybody. You're just angry. How could this... T it's ruined. Everything. This man is dead. This man who was serving God. This man who was trying to do a good thing. And this thing we're all trying to do, it's over just like that. How could this be? What, it, what happened? What happened here? We did everything right, right? Right? Didn't we do everything goes on to say that uh, he became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. I want you to just pause and think about that. Three months go by. Three months of confusion. Three months of frustration. Three months of not knowing what to do or what was going to happen. Just questions. Questions upon questions. How would you feel if you were David or if you were the Israelites in this instance? All that good stuff we did, all that good motivation, all those efforts we put into it, all the passion we had, all the unity that we had in this. And we couldn't find, we were seeking after God. We really were. Why couldn't we find him? Why couldn't we get him? So while the ark remains there, 1 Chronicles chapter 14 gives us a historical interlude that I don't think is on accident because the story is going to pick up in chapter 15. But you would think the story with the ark would just go carry right on from what we were just talking about and, uh, and get going from here. In chapter 14, notice what happens right off the bat. You would think David's fear would make him say, I guess God's done with me. I guess we're done. I guess it's over. But it wasn't so. Chapter 14 begins this way. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees, masons, and carpenters to build a house for him. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. So after the devastation of not bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and Uzzah being killed, and all that bad stuff, God was still being good to David. It wasn't that God was done with David. The text goes on uh, and says something else interesting. If I can point out something. Do you notice something missing in chapter 13? All the good stuff they were doing. They're celebrating. They're asking all the experts. There's total unity. Everybody's investing in it. But did you notice who was not consulted in chapter 13? He barely even gets a mention in the decision-making process. In verse 2, David said to the people, If it seems good to all the people, uh, and if it's right in the eyes of the Lord our God, how would David know if it was right? He never asked. He never sought the Lord. Ironically, he was seeking God, but he didn't seek God to know how to seek God. You know what I'm saying? And notice how David seems to have learned his lesson. In chapter 14, in verse 8, it says, The Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, and the Philistines went up in search of David. And David heard of it, and he went out against them. Now, the Philistines had come and made a raid in the Valley of Rephaim. Look, David's been a general for a long time. He's been fighting battles. He knows how to win some battles. He knows how to fight these Philistines, okay? But notice what happens here. David 
inquired of, or yours may say, sought God, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Well, duh, of course you should go up against the Philistines. They're the bad guys. They worship false gods. They hate you know, Yahweh. They hate his people. Obviously you should. David said, no, obviously. No more. I'm not doing obviously. I'm not just going to assume that I can figure this thing out or get some experts together or have a, have a, a, a popular vote and figure out what we think. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to seek after God. And God tells him, yeah, go up. David smashes him, of course. But then they come back for another battle in verse 13. Uh, it says the Philistines made yet another raid. And notice David doesn't say, you know what? We did it last time and God was cool with it. I'm going for it. Notice what he does again. Verse 13, uh, excuse me, 14. David inquired again of God and God said to him, you shall not go up. By the way, good thing David asked. Because if he hadn't asked and just gone for it, who knows if he would have had the victory that he ended up winning. God gives David very specific instructions. Okay, you're going to go up this way and not that way, and then you'll win the victory. And David did exactly what God said. And, of course, he won the victory once again. Verse 17 says, or verse 16, I say, David did just as God had commanded him. And verse 17 continues, says, Then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him on all the nations. All right, so here's the point. David, after this horrible, well, almost beautiful and then horrifying experience in chapter 13 of seeking after God, he learned a really important lesson. I want to state it here as we pivot into thinking about uh, some, some applications here in just a second. Seeking God demands submission to God. Or maybe we say it this way, seeking the goodness of God. And that is what David wanted. He wanted the blessing and the joy and the fellowship, all the good things of God. Seeking after the goodness of God demands submission to the authority of God. Seeking the goodness of God demands submission to the authority of God. It doesn't matter how many experts say it's a good idea. It doesn't matter if all the people come together and give it a thumbs up. It doesn't matter how much we invest into it or how passionate we are or how good it seems. It just seems like it's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter if you're seeking after the goodness of God. All those good intentions, and they clearly were good intentions. We can't question anybody's motivation, including Uzzah, who God publicly executed. Clearly, it was good motivations that everybody had here. David learned a really important lesson, and he learned it here with the Philistines. Seeking after the goodness of God demands submission to the authority of God. Now, in chapter 15, David puts that lesson into action with the ark. Listen to how the chapter begins. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. By the way, that was how God originally designed things, was a tent, a tabernacle. And David seems to be doing his best to try to submit to that um, command from God. Then David said this, No one, no one is to carry the ark of God except the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. We're not doing an ark, a cart this time. We're not letting just whatever guys happen to be with the ark do it. We're going to do it by the ones that God chose to use. Now, by the way, note in verse 3, we've got the same unity that we had before. 
the same excitement, it seems. David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And it gathers all the Levites, all the people. There's several verses that detail all that with the Levites, which is significant because those ones who were supposed to carry it according to the rule of God, that's what David had highlighted. And then in verse 12, David said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of God of Israel to the place that I prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord made an outbreak on us. For, he, for we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. David learned this lesson that if you're going to seek after the goodness of God, you must submit to the authority of God. What did that mean practically? We, we see this. We see a couple of principles I think are super important. I want to note the principles and then uh, highlight a couple of day-to-day examples that we experience. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant that we're trying to figure out, but there are other things in our pursuit of seeking after God that we need to consider, and David teaches us some really valuable principles here. First of all, the, the resource for knowing God's will, for knowing how to seek God. It's not experts. It's not this church. It's not everybody says. None of that counts. The only resource for knowing how to seek God is Scripture alone. What was David doing for those three months? To be fair, the text doesn't say. But it's notable to me that when David comes out after that three-month period where he's wondering, he's trying to figure out things, he's preparing everything, the first stuff he talks about in verse 2 is, hey... We're getting the right people to carry it because that's who God chose, verse 2. And then whenever he comes down to the Levites in verses 12 through 15, the thing he cites is, in verse 13, the ordinance or the rule. God chose according to his ordinance, and then verse 15 clarifies that was written in the law of Moses. All right, it's possible, it's certainly possible, that David knew what the law was before. He was familiar with it, and he just ignored it. The first time it was like, you know what, I don't think this really matters to God. It doesn't matter how we do things. We can kind of do it however we want to. It's no big deal. That's possible. I really don't think so, though. Based on the trajectory of David's life that we see, that just doesn't make sense. That doesn't map onto what we see right here. It is possible, though. But I think actually what we see is David remembered, oh, no. There's actually a literal handbook for this. I don't need to figure it out. I don't need to ask the experts. I don't need to poll the people. I just need to go see what God says. He said it. Where is that? Hey, uh, priest guy, where is that part in the law where it talks about how we're supposed to transport things? Go back and figure that out. Come back with a report to me. And then, boom, let's figure this thing out. He realized or remembered or came to the first time, whatever it was, he realized that the resource for knowing how to seek God is in Scripture alone. It's the first thing. The second thing, the second principle that we learn here from David is not only that Scripture has to be the thing that we seek, but... uh, We need to read Scripture in the right way. Here's what I mean. David could have said, you know, guys, I know in the days of Abraham, uh, they worshiped God in lots of different ways. You know, there were trees, there were altars, there were all kinds of stuff. And so, like, based on that, I think this is how things ought to be. Or, you know, back whenever Israel was in Egypt, before the covenant at Sinai, uh, whenever people were just living with that covenant under Abraham, this is how they worshiped God. He could have done that. And by the way, that would be scriptural. That would be a biblical argument he would be making. But it would be wrong. David didn't live under the covenant that God just made with Abraham. 
he did in a sense, but not just that covenant. He didn't live under the covenant with Noah or the covenant with anybody else. David understood God has set up certain parameters for my period of time in history. Yeah, there's biblical stuff about other periods of history, but I'm within this covenant and I need to keep within these covenantal rules. Keep in your covenant. Does that make sense? We need to go back and see what, for us, for us as the nation of Israel, what are the rules for us? We can't just say, oh, God said this to Noah, or God said this to Adam, or God said this to Abraham. What about the rules for us? It's not just scripture, but it's uh, properly discerning scripture, keeping in your covenant. All right. Third thing that we learned as far as a principle for how to seek God his way is that David embraced an idea that's all throughout scripture, but it's usually not very obvious by its very nature. When God is specific with his instructions, his silence is binding or restrictive. Here's what I mean. Did you know there's never a passage that says, thou shalt not carry the ark on an ox cart. There's no verse that says that. But look at what David says in verse 13. He says, listen, we ran into a problem. Why? What happened? What's his description? Verse 13, because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord has made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. David, what are you talking about? There was no verse that said no ox cart. There's no verse about that. I mean, I know Uzzah shouldn't have touched it, but that was the problem. The problem wasn't how we transported it. The problem was that Uzzah touched it. I mean, who would have known that the ox was going to stop? Oxen don't stumble that often. That's, that was a fluke thing. The problem wasn't with how we transported it. It was, it was that Uzzah touched it, not according to David. David says, no, the problem was how we transported it. But David, there's no verse that says we shouldn't have done that. I know. Is there a verse that says how we should have done it? Well, yeah, there's actually kind of a lot of verses. There's like a huge paragraph about it. Okay. God told us how we're supposed to do it. So anything else is a violation of God's authority. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Now, look, there's lots of things God didn't say. God didn't say, like, what songs they were supposed to sing when they were transporting it. God didn't say what road they were supposed to take. So, okay, if God hasn't said anything about it, then that silence is just is permission. Do whatever you want to do if God hasn't said it. But if God has given specific direction, like... Put the poles through the rings. Priests, and actually only certain priests, again, Numbers chapter 4, if you want to check this out, that's the text David would have studied. We can study it right along with him. That's the way you transport it. Then that's the only way. Anything else is a violation of God's authority. Okay, so these are the principles David learned from the ox cart story as he embraced this idea that seeking after the goodness of God demands submission to the authority of God. Scripture alone. Keep in your covenant. Don't go back to somebody else's covenant. Keep in your covenant. And understand that silence, when God has been specific about something, silence is binding. We've got to obey. We've got to respect the silence of God whenever he's given specifics. Okay, uh, let me highlight a couple of things that I think this, this really relates to us. All right? uh, like I said, we're in a different covenant. So we don't have, our, we don't have the ark uh, of the covenant that we're dealing with. But what are some other things that arise for us? And questions that we might have as we are seeking after God with really good motivations. Uh, how about church fundraising? Church fundraising. You guys ever seen that in a church before where people, they have like a baked goods thing or a car wash or whatever? It's always with the best motivations. Always. People are excited. They're passionate about it because they want to go serve people in some place where there's not much service being done. Or they want to go preach the gospel and they want people to fund it by having a car wash or having a baked goods sale or having a yard, church yard sale, all that stuff. That's really good. That's really good. Let me ask you, is that how God wants us to seek after doing his will? Do you know any Bible verses that condemn that? 
I don't. We got good motivation. If we all agree, we could consult experts, see if there's any problems, then let's go for it. Let's just do a church fundraiser. Here's the problem. Has God ever said, oh, actually, let me pause for a second. Someone might even make this argument. It's fine. Look in the scriptures. Actually, the very scripture we just read in 1 Chronicles 14, who was it that funded the stuff that David was doing? Look at 1 Chronicles 14 and verse 1. Who was doing it? Some guy from another nation outside of God's people. That seems like a good biblical argument that it's good for us to you know, draw resources from people outside of the body of Christ, people who we might have some sort of marketplace exchange with. That's good. So we're, we're golden. We have some biblical precedent for it. By the way, that's kind of a weak argument. There's much better ones you could use throughout Scripture. All right. Uh, well, so let's work it again. We're going to use Scripture alone. We need to keep in our covenant, and we're going to respect the silence of God when he's been specific. All right, so let's go to Scripture. We already did that. But is it fair to use an Old Testament example to figure out what churches are supposed to do today? No, it's not. We can draw out principles, don't get me wrong. But the covenant we're in started with the death of Christ. He said every first day of the week, we take the cup. That's a reminder that we're a part of the new covenant that was made in his blood. So I can't, if I'm looking for the rules, I need to look for the instructions of Christ in his new covenant. Now, if there's nothing said about it, then sure, maybe the best place to go is the Old Testament to learn a little something and then move on from there. Or we just come together and come up to it with a decision. Whatever, it's fine. But has God been specific? Well, yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Romans chapter 15, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. The Lord has said a lot about how churches are supposed to collect funds. And it's not through baked goods sales. It's not through yard sales. It's not through, by the way, it's not even through trying to coerce or, or uh, petition people who attend worship services and aren't even Christians. Hey, give us money, give us money. No, you know how they're supposed to do the good work of God? Free will offerings from those who are saints. That's the right way to do it. And if we do anything else beyond that, we're not respecting God's silence. He's been very specific about it. He said how it's supposed to be done. And so any kind of fundraising we might do as a church beyond that would be wrong. By the way, I might add, a lot of times the ministries that uh, religious groups seek to fund by uh, extra-biblical, extra-covenantal um, fundraising methods, a lot of times those ministries aren't even biblical. They're not even something in the New Covenant, and that's part of the problem anyways. Anyway, you get it, right? How about another one? Um, somebody says, man, listen, I think we need to appoint elders in this church. And honestly, I think one of the most godly spiritual people we have is Sister Fill-in-the-Blank. We all agree. Like, she's one of the wisest, most godly people here. She should be one of the elders. Why not? I mean, there were, you got Deborah was a leader in Israel, you know. You got other godly women throughout, I mean, why not? We all agree on it, and we know it. we're not coming at it from any kind of weird place. We're actually going to even follow, you know, we know the New Testament says that uh, women aren't supposed to be teachers or preachers. So we're not even, she's not going to teach or preach. She's just going to serve in other roles and be recognized as an elder. What's wrong with that? What do you think? Is there anything wrong with that? Maybe that's fine. Except in the new covenant, there are very specific instructions given for who can serve as an elder in a church. For instance, that person must be the husband of one wife. Tough to be a husband if you're a woman. Now, to be fair, none of those passages say, and no woman shall be an elder in the church. Never says that. But since he was specific about who is supposed to, anything else is wrong. By the way, the fact that we might say, well, there's a single guy. and I mean, he's only like 28, 29, but he's, he's a great dude. He's wise. He's godly. Let's have him serve as an elder. What's wrong? There's nothing that says a young man cannot or an unmarried man cannot. It doesn't say that. But he specifically says it must be a husband. By the way, a husband who's raised uh, uh, with, with, with skill and with godliness, raised children, 
uh, who submit to him and submit to the Lord. Okay, anything else we're not allowed to do. You get what I'm saying? All right, I know that's like uh, religious churchy stuff. Let's get into some like more practical things. Why is it wrong for a man to have multiple wives? If someone asked you, what would you say about that? Why is it wrong? Or is it wrong? Because after all, Abraham did. David sure enough did. Lots of people did. So what about for a Christian? If I, if I came up here, I'm not. But like, imagine that I said to you guys, I just want to make a little announcement. I'm going to be getting a second wife. And, uh, you know, first off, you'd be like, okay, where are you moving, buddy? Because that's not allowed here. But why would you think it's wrong? Other than just it doesn't seem right. Well, look, seeming right or wrong doesn't mean anything because it sure seemed right to transport the ark on the ox cart, and it wasn't right. And it wouldn't be right for us to go talk to each other. What do you think? Is that right? I don't think it's right. Maybe we should all... I don't know. Look, you can't, you can't condemn me for that. That's not, a real, that's not a legit thing. And I got scripture on my side. I want to be like Abraham and David. I don't, by the way, just to be clear. But why would it be wrong? Well, in Matthew chapter 19, you remember what Jesus said about marriage? A man should be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's pretty specific. One, one, two, one. That's like, that's the equation. There's no variables given. There's no room given for more than. That's it. Now, it's true. Jesus never explicitly condemns polygamous marriage. By the way, he never explicitly condemns same-sex marriage either. He never does. Except he does. Do you get it? He does because he said, here's the deal. One man, one woman. Not one man, three women. Not one woman, five men. Not one woman and one woman. None of that. There's one prescription given. And anything else is a violation of God's sovereign, authoritative will. The same goes for, uh, let, me, let me give you something else, right? Someone may ask, and this gets a little more tricky, but I think it's worth us just pointing out. What if I said, guys, I just don't believe I belong in a man's body. I believe that I need to take uh, prescription drugs and undergo a surgery to have my physical makeup match up with my psyche. Um, I'm going to have a, a change to be a woman. That's tough. This is tough because we go to Scripture, and there's literally nothing about that. Zippo. And this might be one of those where we say, well, I mean, I think there's nothing said about it, so therefore God must be fine with it, whatever you want to do. Except there are some Scriptures given that speak to this sort of thing. For instance, there are lots and lots of Scriptures that address how men are to behave and how women are to behave. Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 Colossians chapters 3 and 4, Titus chapter 2. Um, I mean, I, we could just go on and on. There's all kinds of scriptures that speak to this, how men are to behave and how women are to behave. Beyond that, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 17 to 24 explicitly command that Christians are not to undergo changes in their status, right? Uh, if you're circumcised, don't be uncircumcised. Or maybe to put it this way, don't have a surgery on your sexual organs to change something about that. Stay in the condition that you're in. All right, so is there a condemnation for me to undergo a sex change surgery? No. Has God been specific about how I should behave as a male? Yeah. And you know what one of the options that's never listed is? Stop being a male. Act like a female. Change to be a female physically. God's been very specific about how I'm supposed to conduct myself as a man, born as a man. Even if I don't feel much like a man, even if I don't think that I'm a man, there's specific instructions given about that. And anything beyond that is a rejection of what God has said. You get what I'm saying? I'm going to stop right there, but you guys get the point. If we want to learn the lesson that David learned, that seeking after the goodness of God requires submitting to the authority of God, then we need to follow these same rules. To go to Scripture alone, 
Not what the experts, not what the democratic people of everybody says, not what seems right to us, not what we, we know is with good intentions. And I, by the way, all these things I just mentioned could be done with very good intentions, the best of intentions. Not the things that give us joy and excitement and celebration, even as done for God. We go to Scripture alone. We keep within the covenant of Christ in our case. And we respect the silence of God when He's been specific. Does this feel like a downer kind of way to live? It kind of feels uptight, and it's hard. And actually, it is. I'm not going to pretend like it's not hard, because it requires a lot of thinking about like everything you do in your life. But whenever they finally brought the ark in, by the way, it was like a replay of the last time. There was dancing, so much so that one of David's wives, she despised him because he was making such a fool out of himself. And David said, girl, I don't even care. I'll make myself the foolest of fools for God. They were dancing and celebrating and all the people were united in this and they, they actually just took a few steps with the ark and they said, stop! We gotta offer sacrifices to honor God right here. And they did that and they took it into the city and they brought it in and the, the, the Levites brought the ark in and they set it in the tent and David gathered all the people together for that song that Daniel uh, read for us before the lesson. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Seek the face of the Lord. Seek the strength of the Lord. Not the strength of the people, not the strength of me, not the strength of the experts, not the strength of my good vibes, not the strength of any of that stuff. Seek the strength of the Lord. Seek His face continually. And then the song goes on and on and on about all the great stuff, the salvation of God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the joy that we derive from God when we seek Him His way. And that wasn't just something for them there. I want to show you one more brief scripture in Isaiah chapter 55 to wrap this thing up. Isaiah chapter 55 is a prophecy for those who would follow after Christ. But in this, it mentions David and talks about the covenant that God had with David. And he says, you know, just like I've treated David right, I'm going to treat you right. Just like all the joy and the salvation and the strength that David received, you will too. I want you to listen to what the instruction is in Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Just like David said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. But in order for you to do that, let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord just like David and all the Levites and all Israel did they were doing it their way, not God's way. They were seeking after uh, God according to their thoughts, not his thoughts. They weren't looking at his rules. They were just doing it however they thought was best. And they were still seeking God, but not according to his rule. They were doing it according uh, to their rule. Verse 8 says, oh, excuse me, just like God treated them right in uh, 1 Chronicles 14 and 15, God didn't give up on them. God didn't say, I hate you guys now. He forgave them. The same is true for us. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. That was the lesson David had to learn. We had a way. We had the ox cart. We had the celebration. We had all this. We had all the people. We had this democratically decided, this, all this stuff. But it wasn't God's way. And we suffered the consequences of that. And I want to tell you, if we don't seek God his way, we're going to suffer the consequences too. No matter how good our motivations are, no matter what we want, someday, somewhere along the way, either on this earth or on judgment day, we're going to reach out to touch the very presence of God and we'll fall down dead if we don't seek God his way. That's why he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. But here's the thing. Verses 8 and 9 reads like a prohibition. Stay down there. Y'all are just fools and you're not allowed to think like me. It's not that though, y'all. It's an invitation. Notice verse 7 again. Forsake your ways and your thoughts. Because God's ways and God's thoughts are better. And if you would seek the Lord while he may be found. Verse 10 continues. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth. They make it bare and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, it just produces more and more and more good stuff. And yeah, you're going to have to give up some stuff. You're going to have to be really particular how you live your life, seeking after God and serving Him His way. But I'm telling you, it's going to be even better than whatever you thought you were going to be able to work out your way and your thoughts of seeking after God. If you do it His way and after His thoughts, it's just going to keep growing and bearing fruit and being beautiful. Verse 11, God says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. All the bad things, all the problems, all the death, gone. Replaced with beauty. Replaced with joy, replaced with peace, replaced with all the goodness that God has to offer. Because you understood that seeking after the goodness of God demands submission to the authority of God. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. And thanks be to God in Jesus Christ that he is our vision. He's how we see the world. And if we see the world his way, if we seek after him his way, then what's promised to us is joy and peace forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us and your forgiveness and your compassion whenever we don't seek you according to your word. We turn inside to our feelings. We turn to our friends or our family or society or even good people, and you know, God, you know we're here because we care. We're here because we love you. We're here because we want you, and we're seeking after you. But we recognize that far too often we have, and we probably will again, uh, failed to seek you your way. Teach us your greatness. Teach us to bow down before your throne and to seek you your way. And fill us with your joy and your peace now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.